The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and also Numbers chapters 21, verses 5 through 9. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. <clears throat> Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Well, there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of God for the people of God. I'm so glad to be here with all of you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 3. I don't know if you know this, but I have a countdown clock, a secret countdown clock, because if you've ever been in a church where the preacher preached too long, you're glad that I have a countdown clock. But I preached this sermon at 9 a.m., and I looked up, and there was like 12 minutes left on the clock. So I'm going to take my time. We're going to go slow this morning. We've got plenty of time. 
uh, we're, we're in good shape. So uh, page 834, if you're using one of the Bibles that you have under your seat, uh, or if you're newer to Cormdeo and you're just joining us for this Gospel of John study, I'd love to give you one of these little study guides. It's just the text of the Gospel of John, along with some space for note-taking, journaling. Um, and so if you'd like one of those, come see me afterwards, and I'd love to give you one as a gift um, that will help you journey along with us through the Gospel of John, although apparently I've given you some, and then you don't bring them to church, so no names, no people singled out, but uh, anyway, you know who you are. So, um, hey, in the past few weeks, seriously, all eyes have been focused on Afghanistan, right? I mean, th- this has sort of consumed our national attention. Um, This past week, of course, on Thursday, uh, we lost 13 U.S. service members, including a Marine corporal from our own city. And all that's been going on in Afghanistan these past few weeks has been a reminder to us that evil is real, right? That there really are people in the world who are out to hurt others and exploit others and destroy others. And I think that can be complicated for us as Christians, and here's why. Because we know our theology tells us, the scripture tells us that every human being is a sinner, right? That sin is a condition we are born into, um, that it corrupts every part of us. And so every person on earth is in need of the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. And so we know theologically that both the Marine who's giving his life for our sake and the terrorist who's uh, trying to blow people up, both of those people actually are sinners in need of the grace of Christ. And our theology tells us that. And yet, when we experience the kinds of things we've seen, it does remind us that, that humanly speaking, as we look at the world, we really do sort of see Good people and not so good people, right? As we look at the world as human beings, there are some people you'd want as neighbors and some you might want not want as neighbors. There are some people you'd trust with your kids and some you wouldn't. There are some people you'd want to do business with and some you wouldn't. And we make these kind of calculations all the time, right? We're thinking about, is this a safe person for me to hang out with? Is this person trustworthy? Humanly speaking, we tend to identify that there are good people and not so good people. Well, as we come to John chapter 3 this morning, we meet, by all accounts, one of the good people, Nicodemus. This person is the kind of guy who makes for a good neighbor. You'd want him on the school board. Uh, He'd be a good friend. If Nicodemus lived in your neighborhood, he'd be the guy who brings you cucumbers from his garden just because he had some extra ones. He'd be the guy that lets you borrow his chainsaw when that limb falls down in your yard. He'd be the guy who always buys popcorn for your kid's fundraiser, even though it costs twice as much as buying any other popcorn anywhere else. Nicodemus is that kind of person. He's a a good-hearted individual, humanly speaking, and he comes to Jesus by night because he's searching. Nicodemus is a person who believes in God, and he resonates with Jesus' teaching, but he has some questions. Uh, He's pondering, he wants to come and explore further who Jesus is and what Jesus is talking about. And maybe you can relate. Most of you hearing this sermon this morning are good people. You believe in God, you appreciate the teachings of Jesus, you want to be good neighbors to those around you and good citizens in society, and yet something's missing perhaps. You're not sure what or why. Well, the beauty of the Gospel of John is that we get to look over Nicodemus' shoulder as he comes to Jesus seeking to find out what does Jesus require of good people? 
And the answer is surprising. And it takes us right to the heart of the gospel message. So let's dive in and take a look at the story. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now I want you to notice something right off the bat. It's a good observation for us to make. Notice that Nicodemus does not ask Jesus a question. Instead, he makes an assertion. One of the signs of humility is curiosity. Do you ask questions with a real desire to understand someone else, or do you merely make assertions because you kind of already know, right? One of the common challenges we encounter uh, especially with people who come from a church background, which is many of us, is this problem of presumption, a lack of curiosity. Right? Like Nicodemus, it's easy to presume that you already have all the proper categories, that you're already operating from the right set of assumptions. And maybe you are. But what if you aren't? Is there a chance that your categories are wrong? You'll notice what Jesus does in order to sort of upset Nicodemus' categories is he just doesn't respond to the initial assertion. Instead, he totally shifts the conversation in a different direction. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus would have assumed that since he was a deeply religious person, one of the spiritual leaders among his people, that he was on the inside track to the kingdom of God. And yet with this one statement, Jesus totally flips his world upside down. And remember, this is not just Jesus talking to Nicodemus, this is also Jesus talking to you and me. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you need more than a partial renovation. About a year ago, my family moved into a new house, a different house for us, and it needs some partial renovation, like many houses do, right? It's a great house, but it needs a few tweaks here and there. So like just this weekend, I got done rebuilding the master closet because when we moved in, the master closet was just dumb. It wasn't laid out right. There was a door that wasted half the space in there. And so we got in there and tore everything out and put in a pocket door and did some organization. And man, it's awesome now. Like I walked in there and I was like, yes, this is why I did this. Because this closet is now the way I want it. Well, it's a minor renovation. And so now that I'm done with that, I got a list of other things that kind of need to be tweaked here and there. Nicodemus is under the impression that the human soul is kind of like that. It just needs a, a partial renovation. And many people have had this same impression that Nicodemus had. So throughout history, some people have said, you know, the core of the human problem is bad thinking. And so what we need is a change of mind, better ideas. Other people have said the core of the human problem is negative emotions. And so what we need is emotional renewal. Or other people have said the core of the, the human problem is that we're willing the wrong things. And so we need to learn how to choose in better ways. And what Jesus is saying is, a partial renovation will not do. 
You need more than a partial renovation. You are sinful all the way down, and therefore you need renewal all the way down. You need nothing less than a new birth. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, there are two ways to understand Nicodemus' response in verse 4. Look what he says. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Maybe Nicodemus has totally missed it. Like maybe he just really, really thought Jesus was being that literal. Like maybe he's one of those super concrete people who's like, hold on, how do I get back in my mom's womb, right? Possibly. But remember, Nicodemus has a PhD in religious studies, okay? He's not an unintelligent person, and he can operate on two levels of dialogue just like we can when you hear someone say something and you realize, oh, they're speaking sort of figuratively here. We should detect a degree of scorn in Nicodemus' response. He's taken the category Jesus gave him, you must be born again, and he's purposely putting it back in the most literal way possible to sort of, to sort of make light of it. Come on, Jesus, really? Born again? You can't possibly be serious. I mean, I'm sure there are people in the world who need wholesale renovation. You and I both agree those people are out there, but I'm one of the good people. Like, look at who you're talking to here, Jesus. <laughs> so now at least Nicodemus is asking a question, right? How can a man be born when he is old? But it's a, it's a mocking question. It's a scornful question. And so in response, Jesus just doubles down on what he's already said. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he says again the same thing he said before, except instead of saying born again, he replaces born again with the phrase born of water and the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, here again, we learn something important about how we should read the Bible. When we come across a phrase like this, born of water and the Spirit, what we shouldn't do is start brainstorming what that means to us. The first thing we should do is to ask, where in the Old Testament, where in the Bible that both Jesus and Nicodemus read, do we find reference to water and the Spirit? You'll notice that later on in this passage in John 3, Jesus chides Nicodemus for being the teacher of Israel and yet not understanding what Jesus is saying. What, what Jesus is saying is, hey, this is not a new idea, Nicodemus. The new birth is not a new idea. It's an old idea that the prophets talked about repeatedly. And the most likely Old Testament reference that Jesus has in mind here is in Ezekiel chapter 36. It's the same passage we use regularly after our confession of sin as an assurance of God's forgiveness and pardon. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and following say this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Water and the spirit. 
Ezekiel here is speaking of a deep inner cleansing and renewal that totally transforms a person. It's like a new birth. And unless this happens to you, Jesus says, unless this new birth takes place, unless you're born of water and the Spirit in the way Ezekiel was talking about, unless you get a new heart put within you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, back to the Gospel of John, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, helpful metaphor Jesus is using, right? Wind. Can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of it. And he's saying, in the same way, you can't see the Spirit's work, but you can see the effects of what the Spirit does. Where is he getting this metaphor? Well, you tell me, where's he getting it? Yeah, there you go. So you guys were like, is that a real question I'm supposed to respond to? Like, I'm sorry for doing that to you. Yes, he's getting it from the Old Testament, right? Anytime Jesus is using a metaphor, an image, a symbol, chances are he's just borrowing it from the Old Testament. And so if we go to the prophet Ezekiel chapter 37, I want to read to you the first 14 verses of Ezekiel 37, where we see this image used, because it's the background for what Jesus is drawing on. So here's what happens in Ezekiel 37 verse 1. The prophet Ezekiel says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. Keep in mind that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word breath and the word spirit are the exact same word. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, O spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So that's the vision that, I, that Ezekiel has. And then, then God says this, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. And notice that's an image of resurrection. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. The image Ezekiel has is that God's people are as dead as a valley full of bones. And despite that, God is going to raise them up and give his spirit to them and make them live. 
So when Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's using the imagery of Ezekiel. He's drawing on this picture of the Valley of Dry Bones. He's saying to Nicodemus, you already know this, Rabbi, because you've read the prophets. You're an Old Testament scholar. No matter how religious you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how morally serious you are, you must be born again. And of course you know that, Nicodemus, because Ezekiel. Now, verse 9. Sorry, back to John. i got to turn my Bible to John 3. John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Which again, is not a question of like, that doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. It's not a question of I don't get it. It's a question of how is this even possible? You're telling me, Jesus, that the most moral, upstanding, good neighbor kind of person is no closer to the kingdom of God than a thief or a murderer? You're telling me, Jesus, that a good, moral, church-going Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian is no closer to the kingdom of God than an atheist? How can these things be? Verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Read your Bible, Nicodemus. Don't you remember the people of God in the Old Testament who had the law, the prophets, the sacrifices, the temple, an entire monotheistic religion focused on the one true God, and yet the prophet Ezekiel said to them that they were a bunch of dead, dry bones, and unless the Spirit of God comes and breathes life on them, they have no hope? It's simple, Nicodemus. You must be born again. So, what does God require of good people? You must be born again. Doesn't matter where you go to church, what family you grew up in, what religious tradition you inherited, how nice of a person you are, how much of the Bible you know. There's one criteria for entering into the kingdom of God, and it is this. You must be born again. By the way, fascinatingly, remember Jesus says this three times. Verse 3, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. In verse 7, the pronoun changes from singular to plural. In other words, what Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Hey, y'all must be born again. Jesus is making a statement about humanity here. So the most, most important question you can ask yourself this morning is this, have you been born again? Because you can attend Quorum Deo Church for the rest of your life. You can be a wonderful human being, a model citizen, a truly good person, and yet not be born again. So here's what this dialogue with Nicodemus leaves us with. Jesus is saying, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you and I need something to happen in us that is outside of our control. We need new birth. How many of you, how many of you had a hand in deciding the day of your physical birth? None of you, right? Your mother didn't even have control over the day of your birth. 
At some point, the labor pangs began, and shortly thereafter, you came into the world. Some of you were premature. Some of you were late. Some of you were in emergency C-section. You had no control over the circumstances of your physical birth. And likewise, you have no control over the circumstances of your spiritual birth. It is a sovereign, gracious work of the Spirit of God. So I want you to notice what Jesus is doing. Nicodemus is coming as a good person. The kind of person you would say, I want that guy as my neighbor. I want him on the school board. I want him working in my company. Nicodemus is coming as that kind of person and saying, hey, Jesus, you know, we, we know that you're a, a teacher who's come from God. And Jesus is saying, hang on, hang on. Before we have that conversation, let me just make, make this clear. You must be born again. So what Jesus is doing is telling us that in order to enter his kingdom, <laughs> We need something to happen that we can't control, that we're not in charge of. So if I must be born again, and yet I cannot cause myself to be born again, where does that leave me? Well, it leaves me dependent on the mercy of God, doesn't it? And that's exactly where Jesus wants Nicodemus, and that's exactly where Jesus wants you. Because you know what religious people tend to think? They tend to think if I do the thing and pull the right levers, then God has to do X. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus with that same mindset. Hey, I'm a good person. I'm a teacher of the Old Testament. I'm a leader in Israel. I follow the law. I'm scrupulous. I'm moral. I'm upstanding. I'm not like those people over there. So Jesus, of course, I'm on the inside track, right? Jesus wants you to feel your inability. Something must happen that you are not in control of. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how moral you are. Doesn't matter how religious you are. To be in his kingdom, you need something to happen in you that you cannot make happen. He wants you to feel helpless because only when you're actually helpless are you in the place now where his mercy can meet you in the way that it needs to. Notice that in this dialogue with Nicodemus, never does Jesus say, figure out how to become born again. He is not giving you something to do. He's telling you something that must happen. You must be born again. You need an invisible, mysterious, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the soul. That is a fact. However, your job is not to worry about how that's going to happen. Your job, rather, is to look to Christ. So after he pushes Nicodemus up against his own inability, the fact that he needs something to happen in him that he cannot possibly be in charge of. Now, Jesus switches the conversation. Look at uh, John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, during the scripture reading, we just listened to the passage in the book of Numbers that Jesus is referring to here. The Israelites were bitten by poisonous snakes. God said to Moses, make a snake out of bronze, lift it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten by a serpent, when they look at that snake, will live. And likewise, writes St. Augustine, whoever has been bitten by the snake of sin need only gaze on Christ and he will have healing. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so has the Son of Man been lifted up on the cross so that whoever looks, sees, believes may have eternal life. Do you ever read that story in Numbers and just go, that's just weird? Like, what is up with that, right? The people are being bitten by snakes. God's solution is not, hey, let me send a medical personnel who's really good with snake bites. His solution is make a gold snake, put it up on a pole, tell anybody in the camp who's bitten by a snake, all you got to do is look at that snake and you'll live. Why does God do it that way? Do you remember what I said a week or two ago? That prophecy in the Old Testament is not just verbal, it's pictures and images and experiences and people. Why do you think God did it that way? Because if I'm bitten by a snake and the means of healing is I have to look at something and take God at his word that he says that will heal me, what does that team me up for? The cross of Jesus Christ. That when God sends his son into the world and puts him on a cross and says, this will heal you from the disease of sin if you will only look and believe, his people had something in their history that pointed them to that exact thing. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the Old Testament scholar. Hey, Nicodemus, remember the book of Numbers? Remember that whole thing with the snake in the wilderness? Listen, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes may have eternal life. You must be born again, Jesus says, and yet you cannot cause yourself to be born again. So what are you to do? You are to look to Christ, lift it up on the cross and believe. That's what you're to do. Now, as if all of that wasn't good enough news, John follows this whole thing with this amazing paragraph that could be a sermon in itself. And the challenge of John chapter three is, where do the quotation marks end? because we don't have quotation marks in the Greek text. So there's this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, and then at some point now John is talking to us as the author of the book. And so scholars debate, where do the quotation marks end? Where does it stop being a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? And now it's a conversation between John, the author, and the Holy Spirit, and us, the reader. And most scholars say that shift happens after verse 15. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then John the Apostle appends this, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a life-changing verse. There's a reason that John 3.16 is one of the most memorized verses, one of the most familiar verses, one of the most beloved verses in the entire Bible. And I want to show you why. I want to show you why it changes how we understand the love of God. Most of us functionally believe that God loves us because Christ died for us. Right? After all, I'm a sinner. And I know that God is holy and God hates sin. And so it took the death of Christ for God to love me. That's how we tend to think. It took the death of Christ for God's disposition toward me to be changed from wrath to love. Well, listen, if that's how you think, here's what I can promise you. I can promise you that deep down, you struggle to really believe that God actually loves you. Because after all, 
love isn't his deepest heart toward you. He only loves you because Christ died for you. If it took the death of Christ for God to love you, then love is not his deepest heart toward you. And that's why John 3.16 is in the Bible. Let me read it to you again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Love is not the consequence of the incarnation. Love is the reason for the incarnation. It's the love of God that motivated him in the first place to give his son. Or we could say it this way. God doesn't love you because Christ died for you. Rather, Christ died for you because God loves you. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Because now God is love all the way to his core. It's his love for the world that motivated him in the first place to send the son into the world. Friends, need I remind you, since we just profess the Apostles' Creed, that we are Trinitarian Christians. Jesus did not come to solve a conflict in the Trinity where God really wanted to love us, but he didn't, and so Jesus had to make him like us. That's not Trinitarian theology. That's whack. The Bible says God loved us and sent his son. Out of his pre-existing love, he chose to send his son into the world to bear the curse of sin on our behalf. That's how redemption works. God's deepest heart toward the world is not condemnation. His deepest heart toward the world is love. And that changes how we understand the love of God and how we experience the love of God. Now, I know that there are some of you out there who are worried that I have gone a little too far here. Maybe we just went liberal, right? So let me quote you no less of a Reformed Protestant Calvinist than John Calvin. <laughs> From his commentary on John 3.16, here's what Johnny C. says. This mode of expression, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, this mode of expression may appear to be at variance with many other scriptures, which lay in Christ the first foundation of the love of God to us, and which suggests that apart from Christ, we are hated by God. But we ought to remember what I have already stated, that the secret love with which the Heavenly Father loved us in Himself is higher than all other causes. We are so very dear to God that on our account, He did not even spare His only begotten Son. Such is the fervor of the love of God toward us. That's Calvinism right there, baby. That's how much God loves you. The fervor of his love toward you. He did not spare his only begotten son. Friends, Christ died for you because God loves you. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 17, four. God, catch this, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, salvation is the mission. Condemnation is a byproduct. Jesus is on a mission to save the world. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are condemned, but not because God is out to condemn you. Rather, because light has come into the world and you've chosen to stay in the darkness. That's what verse 19 says. This is the judgment. What is the wrath of God? What does the judgment of God look like? Here it is. That light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is the light of the world who has come, and there are two responses to his coming. We come to the light in humble repentance and faith, or we resist the light and avoid the light and choose to stay in the darkness. Jesus has come to bring light into the world, but his coming does put us on the horns of a dilemma, doesn't it? Which will we choose? Will we come to the light or will we remain in the darkness? So friend, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you come from. I don't know what your background with church and religion and Christianity and Jesus and all that stuff is. But here's what the Spirit of God wants you to hear this morning from his word in the Gospel of John chapter 3. You must be born again. And the good news is God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hear the word whoever. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. That word is as wide as the world. Whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. So what should we do in light of this news? Look to Christ. Come to the light. See the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and believe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we simply ask this morning that you would give us the grace and the faith to take you at your word and to believe in the depth of your love. Help us believe and trust that you so loved a world full of darkness that you sent your only son so that whoever believes could have eternal life. And that whoever includes every person everywhere who will come to the light. So give us grace this morning to see your love, to believe, to look to the son and believe. And help us Rest confidently, knowing that you love us all the way down. Pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.